0: We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 this morning. Before we dive into the passage, though, I do want to take a moment and talk about uh, what we're doing as a church for Hurricane Harvey relief, because uh, many of you have asked, what can I do? How can I participate? If you go to our website, grace-bible.org, right on the front page, you'll see a link that will take you to a page that describes everything we're trying to do. Every Saturday between, pretty much every Saturday, between now and the end of the semester, except for one or two, we're going to have teams going to work with a group at First Baptist Houston in order to just work, provide some needed work projects and relief efforts down in Houston. We also have a fund, our People in Need Fund. Anything you give to that particular fund between now and September 15th. 100% 100% of it will go toward relief for Hurricane Harvey victims. So you can donate to that on the website, through our giving page on the website. If you, uh, in the offering plate one of these weeks, want to write that on your check in the memo line, people in need fund, that'll go toward Hurricane Harvey relief. So we are, are going to continue to have more opportunities. There are also ways on there you can pray. Uh, bcshelps.org is also a website where multiple churches and organizations in the Bryan College Station area have kind of gotten together to pool all of our efforts because some people have asked, you know, y'all are doing a lot in Houston, but what about Rockport and Port Aransas and other communities? Our answer to that is one organization and church, we can only do so many things. And so what we wanna do is if you say, I've got a particular desire to serve in one of these other communities or one of these other ways, our hope is that by going to that website, It'll direct you to somebody who's doing service in some of the other areas and in some of the other ways that we cannot reach. So there you go, grace-bible.org or bcshelps.org. Ryan Pale also told me he's going to be at the back of the church, uh, of the gym, after the service this morning. If you want to sign up for one of the weekend trips, you can find him and he'll just put your info down on his iPad and you will be set to go for that. All right. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, When Shannon was pregnant with our first child, our first daughter, we took a little pre-baby trip to Washington, D.C. And it was a great trip, just an opportunity for the two of us to get away before our lives changed dramatically. And we enjoyed the trip, but there were a couple of areas in which we did not plan perfectly. And one of those was that I did not remember well from the last time I had been there how much of a walking city D.C. is, how far you have to walk. And uh, Shannon accidentally forgot to pack her really good tennis shoes, and she was six months pregnant. So everywhere we went, there was just a little bit of tension as we would walk a mile, two miles. But we managed to make it through, for the most part. Uh, The low point, though, of the trip was actually the day we visited the National Zoo. The Smithsonian has this National Zoo. You can visit it for free. It's fantastic. Uh, We walked through the zoo. We saw all the great animals and I made the mistaken assumption as we were walking that we were actually on a loop, that we would end up back at the front of the zoo. Turns out that was tragically wrong. We walked straight through the zoo. So we had taken the metro, gotten off the metro, entered the front of the zoo. We walked straight through it to the back and right out the other side of the zoo and looked around and we were on a sidewalk on a freeway. Uh, Now, this is where I compounded my mistake. I said, you know what, I'll bet if we just walk a little ways down this sidewalk, we will find another metro stop, right? It's, it's a big city. There's got to be one. So we turned right and we began to walk and we, and we walked and we walked and we walked and there was no metro stop. After about 10 minutes, Shannon said, I can't do this anymore and uh, proceeded to sit down on the sidewalk. And uh, I said, well, yeah, that's not really like an option here. We're not, we can't camp here. We have to keep going, like we have to find a spot. She said, I cannot walk and walk and walk. I said, I think if we just get around the next bend, we'll find something. She said, I don't believe that, right? I had lost all confidence. So here we are, we're sitting on this sidewalk on the side of a freeway. And I thought, all right, what are my options here? So I picked up my cell phone and I tried to call, there was no like um, Uber or anything. So I tried to call a cab company. And I'm trying to describe to this guy where we are. And he's like, where are you? I said, we are on the road that's behind the zoo. And he said, are you at an intersection? I said, no, we're just on the sidewalk. Like, can you just please just drive that way and you'll find us. He goes, okay, see you in a bit. He hangs up. He never showed up. We waited there. For like 20 minutes. I'm sure he hung up and thought, this is a prank call, right? And he just moved on with his life. So here we are sitting. And finally, finally, after 10 or 15 minutes, I hatched a plan and I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to run back to the zoo. Just wait here. Don't go anywhere. Don't give birth. Don't do anything while I'm gone. Right? So I ran back to the zoo and I saw a guy with a golf cart and I said, Uh, I have a problem. Can you please, please, I said, if I can get my wife back to the entrance to the zoo, will you take us back to the front? And I'm not joking. He looks at me and he goes, this golf cart is only for supplies for the animals. And I said, you must be kidding me. I said, she's six months pregnant. I said, please, if there's a shred of decency in your heart, please. And finally he agreed and took us back to the front and we hopped a cab and we made it back to our hotel. Now, why do I tell you that? Here's why. Because in the middle of that situation, as we were on the sidewalk, wondering what was going to happen, I had a number of thoughts running through my mind that were anything but hopeful. Right? I thought, our future right now is very bleak. We are in the middle of summer, sitting on the side of a freeway, no way to get back. I don't know what's going to happen to us. I don't foresee a good solution. And I began to feel despair. I also had this thought run through my head. I am a worthless husband. I have led my pregnant wife to her doom. And she's not even wearing good shoes, right? There was just this terrible moment of I'm a worthless husband. And then there's no way to fix this, right? Just this powerlessness that I felt. I don't know if you've ever had those sort of thoughts and feelings in your life. Right? I, I am hopeless. The future doesn't look good for me or for my family or for my country or for my city. Right? I'm basically worthless. There's not a whole lot I can do, right? I don't have a whole lot of value that I add to the world in terms of making things better. And you begin to hear those types of thoughts, I'm powerless. I can't fix this. The future is bleak. There's nothing I can do. I'm no good, even if there was something that could be done. Right? Those feelings of despair, I think all of us feel them at times. And I think even in a broader sense, we may be tempted to feel them about our lives, but actually even about our country, about our nation. We look at the chaos that often engulfs our nation and the conflict and the natural disasters like we saw last week, and we feel out of control. We feel powerless. We may feel worthless. And we look and we go, there, where's the hope for the future of our world? Every one of us who feels that way is in good company with the first century church that Paul was writing to in Ephesus. Because these were also people who felt out of control. These were also people who felt a sense, I'm sure, at times of hopelessness because for a Christian living under the Roman Empire ruled by an iron-fisted Caesar... They didn't see a lot of hope for their career, for their future, for their community. They didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have political power. They didn't have military might on their side. They would have felt hopeless, powerless, unseen, unknown, and would have had these same types of fears that you and I wrestle with. And so what Paul does in the midst of those feelings, is he speaks right into those feelings, not simply with the words, hey, buck up, it's going to be okay. But here's what he does. is He says, I want to take you back to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because God gave his son, who died and then defeated death itself. Guess what? You can look beyond the immediate future to a perfect future with hope. Even when you feel valueless, you can trust that God valued you so much that he gave what was most precious to him to redeem you. Even when you feel powerless, you can look and say, I have the greatest power in the universe on my side. God demonstrated his power by raising Jesus from the dead so that the church of Jesus Christ is actually the most powerful entity in the world because we are connected to the power of eternal life through jesus christ that's what ephesians 1 15 to 23 is about When you feel hopeless, there is hope. When you feel worthless, you have value. When you feel powerless, there is power in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, my prayer is that you would remember this. Remember this day after day, moment after moment, in the midst of that despair. I pray that you would know deeper and deeper the hope and the value and the power that flows from the gospel. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, I too, that is for the reason that you have trusted in Jesus, been sealed with the Spirit, he says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Literally, then it says, because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Here's what he says. He says, first of all, I thank God that you know Jesus. Right? Remember the whole first part of Ephesians 1 laid out all the blessings we have because we know Jesus Christ, that we are adopted and chosen by God the Father. We're redeemed and forgiven by Jesus, and then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he says, for that reason, I thank God. And then Paul says, I pray for you. I pray this, that you may know or have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That is that the spirit that lives in you will increasingly help you understand who Jesus is and what God has done in the gospel. Why? Because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, the spirit of God lives in you and gives you the capacity to know him deeper. All right, And so Paul will say this, that he, When we know Jesus deeply, there are certain realities about God that we will understand more and more and more deeply. And he says, this is what I pray. He says, I I pray that you will know Jesus more deeply so that what? You will understand, first and foremost, the hope of God's calling. Verse 18, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The more you know Jesus, the more hope will grow in your heart and mind. The more you understand about the gospel, the deeper your hope will go. This idea of hope uh, weaves its way all the way through the New Testament, over and over and over. Let me show you Romans chapter 8, one of the great hope passages of the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, "...for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself..." also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body for in hope we have been saved but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Here's what Paul is getting at. Both the world and us, we are waiting in hope to be redeemed for that day when Jesus will come back and make everything the way that it's supposed to be. Make everything right. No more death, no more sin, no more sickness, no more trial, no more tears. Jesus will come back and we look to that in hope. Now as you read through the New Testament and you see the word hope, I think we need to to change our understanding of the word hope because in the way we use hope in the English language it's more like wishful thinking right it's like i hope that the aggies will win a national championship this year right we we say that in hope what do we mean i wish right i i hope it happens But it may be that the facts and the reality of the situation contradict that sort of wishful thinking. I hope I will get a promotion. I hope I will get a raise. I hope I will make it onto American Idol. Right? It's it's a, a sort of wishful thinking. That's not the New Testament idea of hope. Instead, the New Testament idea of hope is actually a confident expectation based upon the character and promises of God. That is, he says, you have the hope of your calling. And he's going to tie all of these aspects of what he's talking about here back to the gospel. You have been called in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He died and he rose again. Think about Jesus on the cross facing death. And what does Hebrews 12 say to us? He suffered it all in view of the glory that was before him. That Jesus looked beyond the immediate future. And he said, I know who God is and I know what God will do. This was also what we know, what we find out that Abraham did as he's walking up that mountain with Isaac. And God had said, sacrifice your son. Right? And the author of Hebrews says, Abraham thought in his heart, you know what? God can raise the dead. So even if Isaac dies, he will come back to life. That's hope. And then he says, Jesus had that hope in the father and he gives that hope Through his resurrection. That's hope. It's a confident expectation. A couple of years ago, our family of five went on a long road trip to Colorado. Some of you have done this. We packed up the little SUV and all our stuff and all our people. The kids were wedged back there together, shoulder to shoulder. And we drove off to Colorado, right? And we had a great time in Colorado. But I will tell you, the hardest part of a road trip like that is on the way home. The last seven or eight hours of the last day, that little car becomes a rolling prison. Everybody's ready to get out. Everybody's frustrated with one another. They're shoving. There are sounds and smells that were not present when you left from your original place. And so everybody wants out. And if all you look at is what's going on in the car, you will despair. And that despair will turn to hatred, even of your own people. So, what do you do? You say, just a few more hours. Right? We've entered Texas now. We're getting closer. We're in Dallas. It's only three or four hours. We're going to make it. I want you to picture soft beds and rooms where you're not near us, right? (laughs) I want you to look for the hope ahead. You look beyond what's going on right now. You look beyond the next five minutes, beyond the next 60 minutes, and you see hope. That's what the New Testament says. You look beyond the now. You look beyond the sin and the death and the devastation so that even in the midst of grief, you have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 is this beautiful hope passage. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, Paul isn't saying don't grieve at all. He's saying we grieve with hope. We weep at the brokenness of our world. But we weep with hope. And then we enter into hope less situations with hope, right? Peter says it this way, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you feel hopeless, when I feel hopeless, the gospel says, now there is always hope because we have a confident expectation of the return of, of Jesus Christ. Hope never will die until the day Jesus comes back. So Paul says, the more you know Jesus, the more you engage with his word, the deeper you go in prayer and trust in him, the more you will know the hope of his calling. He says, I pray for that that you'll understand the hope of his calling. Secondly, he says, I pray that you will understand the value of God's people. Now, this is a tough phrase here in verse 18 to translate and understand what it says. And and different people think different things. But it says, I pray that you will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Here's what I think is the interpretive key to that phrase. It's not our inheritance. It's God's inheritance. Right? Paul says, here's what I want you to know, that God has an inheritance. And I want you to understand in a deeper way the riches of God's inheritance. What is God's inheritance? It's the saints. It's you and me. Right? When God opens up his safe and he looks at his valuables, it's you and me and the people he redeemed in Jesus Christ. And he says, I pray you will understand that to a deeper degree. Why? Because when we are tempted to feel hopeless, I think we also are tempted to feel worthless in the face of the devastation of our world. I'm just one person and not really an important one at that. I'm not the president. I'm not the governor. I'm not a celebrity. I don't have a lot of power. But Paul would say, no, I want you to understand how valuable you are to God. How do you know you're valuable to God? Because he bought you with the death of his own son. Again, from First Peter. Peter says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. See, God saw you and he said, I I, I want those people. And so he gave what was most precious to him to purchase you. I've told most of you before, when our son was born, he spent some time in the NICU. He was sick. He had a hard time breathing. And so for several days to a week, we were on pins and needles Wondering how he's going to pull through. And if you've ever had a relative in the hospital like that, you know that often there are two trials that face you. The first one happens because of the health of your loved one. And you pray and you hope. And God willing, they get better and they get out of the hospital. The second trial happens a couple months later when the bills start rolling in. One after another after another right? Sometimes thousands of dollars, sometimes an overwhelming number of bills. And so for a year after he was in the NICU, those bills were rolling in, right? Another one would come in another one would come in. And at times it was stressful, but I'm going to tell you this, I never complained about those bills. Okay. Now don't get me wrong. I can complain about bills with the best of the complainers out there, okay? but not those bills. And here's why. Because everyone that I got, I thought, you know what? I would pay it again for the life of my son. I would mortgage the house. I would empty the retirement account. I would sell the cars. None of my money, none of my stuff has any value compared to that life. God looked at you and he said, nothing I have is more valuable than the life of my people. And so he gave what was most precious to him. His own son. To adopt new sons and daughters. So Paul says, I want you to understand deeply. Your value, your value is not rooted in the fact that you're somehow inherently better than anybody else. It's not rooted in your talent. It's not rooted in your looks. It's not rooted in your net worth. It's not rooted in your job. It is rooted in in the reality that God made you and bought you in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I pray that you won't lose hope and I pray that you won't buy into the lie that God doesn't value you. And if God values you, that means you have a purpose in what he's doing in the world. Maybe different from the purpose of somebody else, from the role of somebody else, but God wants you. So you have hope You have value. Paul says, I pray you would understand the hope of God's calling, the value of God's people. He says, thirdly, I pray you'd understand the power of God's Son. Look at verses 19 to 23. He says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? He says, I want you to know the hope of God's calling, the value of God's people. And then thirdly, the power of God's son. You and I are not powerless because we're connected to the greatest power in the universe. And he begins, he says, I pray you would know the surpassing greatness. That is the overreaching abundance. The idea here is actually if I throw a ball toward a mark and I overthrow it by 10, 20, 30 feet. Imagine your kid is playing little league and you say, I want to win more than anything. I want my kid to win the Little League season, right? But the pitcher on my kid's team is less than ideal. So we're going to swap him out with Nolan Ryan, right? Imagine that, first of all, that was allowed and that you could draft him to your team. And he gets up there and he begins to pitch, right? Would you have more power than you need to win that game? Yeah, overabundant power. When I was taking tennis lessons as a kid, uh, one day a pro on the tennis circuit came in and he had this bet like, anybody who can return my serve, I'll give you $5 or something like that. I don't know why he was so cheap, but, but five bucks, you know, there was no chance. He could have offered a million dollars. We weren't gonna return that serve. He didn't even give us everything he had and we couldn't touch it. He had more power Abundantly more power than he needed to beat a bunch of 12 year olds on the tennis court. That's what Paul says about the power of God displayed in Jesus Christ. It's way more than you need to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat death. And he says, How do we know that? How did God demonstrate it? Well, first, he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus went into the ground for three days and then he came out of the ground and God raised him from the dead. And he said, this is my power. Not even death can defeat the power of God. And then he says he gave Jesus as the authority over everything in heaven and earth. He set Jesus next to him. And you see this in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Where it says, God exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth, and that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person will eventually hit the dirt and say He's the one. Every power in heaven and on earth will hit the dirt before the power of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And then, here's the real kicker. He says he gave Jesus as the head or the rule over the church. He said, not only does Jesus rule the universe, but he's in your midst. He's your leader. I think how substantial and significant that would be to first century Christians living under Caesar. Say, now you have a more powerful king. We sang it this morning, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We forget how subversive that would have been in the first century to say, no, Caesar's not our king. We got another one, a better one, a stronger one. And Paul says, he's the one you're tied to. He has defeated death. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. And he's stronger than even the principalities and rulers of this world. If you're in him, you have more than you need to make an impact for God's kingdom. You have more than you need to defeat sin in your own life. You have more than you need to share the gospel faithfully. And here's often what I think happens is we are connected to all this power if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, but we don't use it. We don't make use of it. I was reminded this week of... uh, Many years ago, when our daughter was about two or three, my father-in-law, for her birthday, gave her a swing set for our backyard. Uh, and I should say, what he gave us was several boxes with boards and screws. And I had to actually assemble the swing set. All right, so I invited a friend over, one of our uh, interns, actually. I was the college pastor. And I said, come on over. You get to help me this weekend. All right? He brought his toolbox I had my toolbox and we began to work and uh, we were screwing in these thousands of screws by hand and it was backbreaking and painful. And after about an hour of this, he looked at me and he said, do you have like a power drill or any sort of power tool? Because this would go a lot faster. I said, "Ah, yeah, I'm sorry. I just don't think that I do. I'm sorry. And uh, I had not used a lot of my tools up to this point, if I'm being really honest. And so I I wasn't really totally aware of everything that I did have. But I was already out there and I said, look, Marty, just kind of be a man here. Like, just, just let's just work. okay?" so we continue to work. He goes home and I go into the garage to put everything away. And I look over and there were two power drills in my cabinet sitting there the whole time that we never touched. It took me a while to call him and admit that to him, actually. That we had all of this power that we never used. And I think Paul would say, I pray that you'll understand in a deeper way all the power that God has given you in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8, 11 for just a minute. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about that. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the greatest demonstration of power in history, dwells in you. And what Paul says is, I pray that you would know in a deeper And deeper and deeper way, the power of God's Son, that the church is the most powerful entity in the universe because you are connected to a powerful God. And then day after day, you know him better and you say, God, I pray for the strength and the ability to share the gospel, to overcome sin, to be a light in my community and in my world. Because the world needs to know the hope of God's calling and the value of God's people, and the power of God's Son. And so we go into hopeless situations, and we speak that truth. So if Paul were here this morning speaking to us, I think he would say, that's what I pray. I pray, first of all, that in those moments of despair, you'd focus your mind on what is true. I have hope, I have value, I have power. And then he'd say, you also pray for one another, for God's people, to remember the truth, to remember the truth. Now, we're going to celebrate communion this morning as we close. And communion from the earliest days of the church, as far back as when Paul was writing Ephesians, and even before that, they would gather together. And this is what they would do, is they would reflect upon what God had done in Jesus Christ. They would reflect upon all God gave when he gave Jesus' body and blood to us. And they'd sit at a table across from one another and say, remember, remember what God did. Remember what Jesus did. He rose from the dead. So we have hope. We have value. We have power. And as we celebrate communion this morning, that's what we're celebrating. If you don't know Jesus Christ yet this morning, this is the morning I think the spirit of God may be calling you to say, I trust in him. I want to know that hope. If you don't know Jesus this morning, don't be afraid just to let the elements pass by you and take this as an opportunity in your own heart and mind to say, is this the day God is calling me to know Jesus? If you know Jesus this morning, as we prepare to partake of communion, let's just thank him and then ask him to provide us with hope, to remind us of the value of God's people, and to remind us of the power of God's Son. If the men would come forward, we'll prepare. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful for the morning. We're grateful above all for Jesus, for the hope of your calling for the value you've placed on your people that you gave your own son, and for the power that we have because of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we know him more, we would remember more and more the reality of all you've given us and live in light of it. We thank you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.